Un instant. This afternoon we return to the meditative cultivation of compassion. This time focusing on that bandwidth of suffering that's not quite so obvious, but not so terribly hidden either. Take some wisdom, but not an awful lot. That is a suffering, it's called the suffering of change. A little bit misleading. A little bit misleading. Implying that if there's change, there has to be suffering. Not necessarily. I pointed out yesterday that in terms of blatant suffering, the suffering of suffering, among the three root mental afflictions, the, the one that is, how do you say, on the most wanted list, the one that's most dangerous, most destructive, Clearly it's anger, hatred. For this second bandwidth, this, with this second spectrum of suffering, suffering of change, there's very clearly one mental affliction that is totally implicated. Is that the word? Implicated? Inculcated? What do you call it in crime when a person is implicated? Implicated. Implicated in the crime, right? Well, attachment. Craving an attachment. That's up to its neck in terms of the arising of suffering of change. Because as soon as there is attachment in a world that is totally in a state of flux, you're bound to be disappointed. Because there's something about attachment. Attachment, again, like the fleas that ride on the rat, or the bubonic plague that lies on the fleas, attachment always is carried by a conceptual mind. Always carried by conception line. Some idea. Some idea. Some idea that's one step removed from reality. Oh, if only I were famous. Oh, I wish I could be famous. People would admire me. Or at least they'd know about me. They'd know that I'm really someone. You know, so people do the craziest things. Climb mountains, jump off of bridges. All kinds of things, just so they can get the name in the newspaper. Grow the biggest pumpkin. <laughs> Just anything. You know, like I grew the fattest slug. You know, this is the fattest slug in history. Goes down in Ripley's, believe it or not. You know, this one was three feet thick. You know. That notion, whether it's fame, whether it's wealth, whether it's prestige, whatever it is, whether it's an acquisition, only if I had this, if I just had this, there's the phenomenon itself that is always in a state of flux. It's fizzing. It's effervescent. It's always changing. There's nothing static about it. But when I think, oh, I'd like this, that's relatively static. And then the next I think, oh, I'd like this, the same thing. And the next day, ten, uh, ten days later, I'd like this. It's pretty much the same thing. You know? It could be an infatuation with another person, a physical object some awards, some prestige, some notoriety, anything. The idea is relatively static. And that which corresponds to reality, in, that which corresponds to the idea in reality, totally in a state of flux. So nobody thinks, oh, may I have a Porsche that will gradually rust and cost me a fortune and get dented and basically slowly erode and turn into a piece of garbage. 
Maybe so. <laughs> Nobody thinks. But that's what happens to all Porsches. Every single one, they just fall apart. You know? Sooner or later. May I have beautiful woman that stays young <laughs> and loves me as I get older and uglier and uglier as she still loves me. And may she never get older. Any candidates? Any volunteers? <laughs> the idea is static. The idea, the object of attachment is a static. It holds, it lingers, it lures. The reality is always in a state of flux. It's always eroding. It's just on a trajectory of destruction and vanishing. So the reality of change is a reality of suffering directly correlated with how much attachment there is. An arhat, who is completely free of attachment, experiences no suffering. It said even when the Buddha passed away, and people, you can imagine people, a lot of his disciples who were not so highly realized, had an enormous amount of attachment to him. They loved him, they adored him, they always wanted to be near him, they wanted to look at him, they wanted to hear his voice. A lot of attachment as people nowadays can have attachment to teachers. Does anybody have attachment for the Dalai Lama? I strongly suspect so. So, but when the when the Buddha was passing away, he was surrounded by many of his followers and so forth. Many were weeping. They could hardly even imagine, since they'd been living in a world with a Buddha, they could hardly even imagine the transition of living in a world and looking everywhere around and not finding any Buddha. That there was one and now he's gone. It was just like the end of the world. It said the devas were weeping, his human disciples were weeping, and yet there were some people who were not weeping, and those were his arhat disciples. He just recognized, yes, this too passes. So no mental suffering. Do does an arhat, as the body gets older, still subject to sickness and injury, aging, does arhat feel physical pain? Of course, you don't get an, a general anesthetic when you become an arhat, as if you're know, totally numb from the hair down. But the experience of suffering is radically different because there's not the grasping. My body, my body, my feelings, my feelings. That's not there. Pain just arises in space. So the suffering of change is really the suffering of attachment. And attachment, of course, is not the same. This mental affliction of attachment is not the same as desire. To desire to be of benefit to others, to lead a meaningful life, to get food when you're hungry, to take care of your children, and so forth. That's not attachment. These are very meaningful desires. So not the same. Now what elevates us out of the suffering of change? As ethics can do an enormous amount, just leading ethical lives, leading lives fundamentally rooted in the principle of nonviolence, of not harming. That's one half of Buddhist ethics is there. And the other half of Buddhist ethics is when you have an opportunity to be of service, go for it. I heard such a nice story today from someone. I'll keep it anonymous. It's not terribly private, but our, our conversations here are. You know, my one-on-one -on -one conversations with you are private, but I think as soon as you see what I'm saying, you'll see this is not invasion of anybody's privacy. But one of you was out walking 
long walk, got a bit lost. Well, the, the jungle pretty much looks homogenous. And a bit lost. And of course, not speaking Thai. And getting a little bit, little bit anxious. Where do I go? And then went to some Thai people and managed, you know, by this or that, signs, bit vocalization. And then they put him on the scooter and took him back here. You know? Ah, oh, that's made me so happy. But that's normal here. He didn't, this person didn't just drop in on a Bodhisattva household. He didn't just strike up lucky. You know, that's actually rather normal. Person is in need. You can help. Yeah. And you're not in a hurry. You're not, you're not too busy. These farmers, these villagers around, you know, they're not that busy. Pace of life, not so fast. So if somebody's really in need, a bit lost, you say, ah, this will take me 10 minutes, 15 minutes. Sure, hop on the scooter, let's go for a ride. You know, and brought him back. Ah, that's ethics. That's ethics. Made that person, I'm sure, I mean, I'm imagining here, but I'm imagining with a lot of confidence. It made that person happy to help this person. And then I can imagine a big smile when dropping them off. Adikap. Adikap. And the person who was helped, of course you're happy. You just received some completely selfless service. They didn't ask for a tip. They were not, there was no notion of, you're going to give me something at the end of this. You're going to open up your wallet and big, big westerner, you're going to start laying out the taibat. That would never come up. Never be imagined. So it was a simple act of kindness. And then I heard about it. Ah, oh, that made me happy. What a nice place to meditate. And I'm telling you, it's contagious. You know? That's ethics. That's ethics. If we all, and that's so simple. That was no, you know, that wasn't a whole lot of money. The petrol, the gasoline for the motor scooter to drive that much. Not that much expense. Right? But simple acts like that. There was an opportunity to be of service and of course they went right for it. You know? Did the person who gave the ride, did that person ever meditate? I have no idea, but my guess is probably not. Probably not. You know? It's ethics. And if the world, if, uh, if, if we set seven billion human beings should be ethically, just holding in our hearts and minds, let's not harm each other. Not with our bodies, not with our speech, not with our thoughts. And when we can lend a hand, let's do it. Oh, it could be such a pleasant place to live. So, so much of the blatant suffering, so much, what, 90%? 95% of the blatant suffering could just vanish. It wouldn't be there. Just ethics alone. Especially the people in power. Prime ministers, presidents, people who really have the big clout. Heads of businesses, they're like the modern kings. The big multinationals. Imagine if they all just lived ethically. You know, they still make a profit, still running their businesses, you know, treating their employees decently, providing good product, charging a reasonable amount. So good business. And be competitive, sure, and a good, healthy, let's produce a better product so people want to buy our product rather than a poorer product. And let's charge a reasonable rate so people really want to... What's wrong with that? Competition is not intrinsically evil. Right? So imagine the heads of state and the heads of business and the villagers and so forth. Oh, there'd be so much less blatant suffering. So that would pretty much do it. I mean, there are natural cataclysms, there's aging, sickness, and death. Okay, we have to deal with that. But so much is not necessary. And that's where it begins. This is all about compassion. 
Where is there hope? Where is there some give? Where is some malleability here? Can we meditate and will be there, will, will there be fewer earthquakes, fewer floods, fewer fires and so forth? Well, maybe not. But nevertheless, how much less suffering there could be. We just lead ethical lives. So that's that. When you go to the suffering of change, you may be seeing this coming now. Latent suffering corresponding to ethics. Overcoming anger and the manifestations, the behavior coming from anger. Then we go to the second one. Suffering of change. Craving big correlation. And within ethics, samadhi, and wisdom, gee, which one could it be? Samadhi, of course. So let's look at samadhi just briefly. Kind of just standing back. Just shamatha, let alone the higher states of samadhi, the dhyanas, the samapatis in the formless realm. Just shamatha. Achieve shamatha, what do you get? Overall, you get a very balanced mind, that's good. That's true. Maintains in between sessions, very balanced mind, very healthy mind, wholesome mind, composed mind, a lot of emotional equilibrium. All that's good. But while you're in meditation, immersed in samadhi, resting in the substrate consciousness, then you're kind of like, oh, like you went out in the desert and you find some deep pool, an artesian well, just pure spring water. Nice, cool spring water. And you just jump in. And you hang out there. Because there it is. You are in an, you are in an artesian well and it just keeps on bubbling bliss and luminosity and non-conceptuality. And then bliss and non-kitsurality and luminosity. Then you roll over and it's a bit more bliss and luminosity and non Then you kind of dunk your head under and it's bliss and luminosity. Yep, this is certainly bliss, luminosity, non-conceptuality. And it just bubbles and bubbles and bubbles away. You know, there it is. You've tapped into a wellspring of those three qualities. It's rather constant. It doesn't change much. I mean, it's Fizzy, that is, it's moment to moment to moment, but it's a whole lot of similar moments. Bliss, 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 bliss. Can you handle that? Luminosity, 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 luminosity. Non-conceptuality, non-conceptuality, non-conceptuality. But it's kind of the same, you know? It doesn't change much. You're just resting there because, of course, it's not stimulus-driven. The, the root of that is beyond the brain. It's not to say the brain isn't active when you're, re when you're resting in shaman. Of course it's active, but that's not where this is coming from. It's not chemically driven. It's not stimulus driven. It's substrate consciousness driven and substrate precedes and follows the formation of this brain. So consider those three qualities. Bliss, luminosity and non-conceptuality. And now consider as we're moving towards the meditative cultivation of compassion for ourselves designed to give rise to authentic motivation, that something is in accordance with reality, so that our desires actually lead us to, as we pursue our desires, it actually takes us where we want to go. Freedom from suffering and finding some really meaningful, satisfying, enduring happiness. That's authentic. That's what the Buddha called authentic intention. That finally you're desiring something that will work out, that's realistic, that actually has a chance of succeeding in the long run. And so th consider those three. And then consider right now, if you will, just real quick, put your mind really fast and 
review your life and reflect, if you will, what kind of things have you desired? What have you wanted? Have you, of course, you want happiness, but now be a bit more specific. You may think of people and objects and money and places and occupations and so forth. But now, I put, now, as you kind of survey, get this overview, this meta-view of the array of desires that have moved you as a sentient being, moved you from here to there, moved you to Phuket. From Phuket, you'll go someplace else, then you'll move someplace else, and then you'll move someplace else. What's moving you all over the place? You've been moving a lot. A lot of it's been voluntary. Right? Sometimes you just get shoved. We often make decisions. We want to move here, move there, make this change, and then go there. Can you remember anything that you've desired that fell outside of three types of desire? The first one is, I just want to experience some pleasure. I want to feel good. I want to eat dessert. I want to listen to beautiful music. I want to enjoy sensual pleasures. I want to enjoy intellectual pleasures. I, I want pleasure. Just, I flat out just want pleasure. I want something that makes me feel good. By whatever, by tactile, by taste, by sight, sound, smell, or mentally, it feels good to have a good reputation. It feels good to have people admire me. I want that feeling of feeling good. There's one. But there's more. There's more than that. Another type of desire. I want to feel alive. I want to feel awake. I want to feel some intensity. I want to, I want some jazz. I want some excitement. I want to turn up the voltage. I want some extreme sport. I want to jump off a bridge with a bungee cord. I want to jump out of an airplane with a parachute. <laughs> I want something that's going to make me feel alive. I want to ride a motorcycle at 100 miles an hour. If, it, if it's a Kawasaki, 150 miles an hour. I want to see my teeth chatter. I want to see my eyes slipping back on the back of my skull. I want to know bam, something's really happening. I want to be thrilled. That's another kind of desire. Not quite the same. I have ridden the motorcycle at 100 miles an hour. It's not very pleasant. But it gives you a buzz. It gives you a buzz. To know that death is so close. Ah, you just reach out and touch it. You know one unseen pothole. And suddenly a motorcycle is going, and your body is just going into smaller pieces. That's exciting. <laughs> that's the second type of desire not the same as I want to feel good if I want to feel good I'm going to eat some chocolate I'm not going to ride a motorcycle at 100 miles an hour but eating chocolate is not that exciting I want to live on the edge right. so that's the second one how about a third one I want to feel safe. I don't want to be afraid. 
I want quiet. I want security. I want peace. I want everything to pipe down. I want stillness. I don't want to feel afraid. I want peace. Peace and quiet. It's not blissful and it's not exciting. I want peace and quiet. I want to be safe from harm. Not the same, is it? For pleasure, let alone thrills. There's nothing very safe about getting thrills. So now those are three desires. Now I invite you to think, have you ever wanted anything, and I mean in all of the years of your life, have you ever wanted anything that fell outside of those, that you really wanted, but it wasn't any of those three? Can you think? This is not a rhetorical question, and I don't pretend to have all the answers of what you desired. You know better than I. But can you think? This is now a serious question. I invite a response. Can you think of anything you wanted that fell outside of those? Not for pleasure. Not for the thrill, the wakefulness, the, well, let's just cut through the chase. Not for bliss, not for luminosity, and not for non-conceptuality. Because in non-conceptuality, you get peace, you get stillness, you get security, you get safety, you get peace and quiet. Because your awareness is totally drawn in from all stimulation. Totally oblivious of even your own body, let alone the environment. So, non-conceptuality, you got peace and quiet. You're safe, it's quiet. Luminosity, you got thrills, you got excitement, you got a buzz. Even without a motorcycle. It's got the edge. It's something really wakes you up. And the bliss is just bliss. So now, can you think of anything you've ever decided that you wanted, that you desired, maybe even you pursued? that doesn't fit in, into one or any com any combination of those three? Can you think of anything? It's a real question. Yes, go ahead. Catherine, first. Let's, let's get this on tape, because if somebody comes up with something, I'll be very interested. <laughs> and I'm not saying you can't, but... What about bodhicitta? Oh, if you experience bodhicitta, there's such bliss in that. But when you aspire to it... You aspire for the bliss for yourself and for other beings. The freedom from suffering. May all beings be free of suffering and find immutable bliss. It fits into two categories. <laughs> I want freedom of suffering and I want peace. Achieved, but just and the, the desire for it, the thinking, I'll get it. I could achieve it. I could realize it. Bliss for myself and others and freedom from suffering. I'll be safe and happy. Whoa, I got two out of three. <laughs> Okay? One down. <laughs> okay, now you're going to be more cautious. <laughs> this is not a win-lose, it's just for fun. But seriously, can you think of anything? That was a good try. Sure, but anything? Okay. I'm not asking you to stop questioning. If you think of something later, I'll be interested tomorrow and the next week and six weeks from now. I haven't been able to think of anything. Not in terms of mundane pleasures, nor in terms of super-mundane or genuine happiness. I haven't been able to think of anything that falls entirely outside of that. Another desire that's not one or any combination of those three. So if we consider that, 
as a time being, for the time being, not as a truth, but as well. Until we can come up with an exception, let's assume, just the time being, that everything we've ever wanted, desired and pursued, fits into one or more of those categories. Assume that until we have some contrary evidence. Right? It's very scientific, working hypothesis. And then now reflect when you wanted any one or more of those things. What did you actually pursue? What did you actually go for? As you ventured out into the world in the hunter-gatherer mode. I need to get this, to get that, acquire it, hold on to it. Hunt it, gather it, keep it. All of these appearances, these objects, this aspiration, this notion, often driven by attachment. If I had that person, if I had that job, if I had that degree, if I had that amount of money, if I had that reputation, if I could live there, if I could do this kind of work, if I could look like this, then bliss or excitement or safety, one of the three maybe even combination. And we go out and we hunt and we gather. And sometimes we fail. That's disappointing. <laughs> and sometimes we succeed and are welcome to the land of anxiety. Because what you just acquired is in a constant state of flux. And in all likelihood, it's going to erode right out of existence. While you're holding on to it, you're in a state of flux and you are eroding right out of existence. So now this is bringing two decomposing phenomena together and thinking, herein lies my happiness. There's something wrong with that picture. Right? So, so often, when we venture out into the world, we are in the pursuit of symbols. Having the trophy wife, if you're an old geezer like myself, Showing other people, man, he must really have his machismo still. A wife like that, oh. He must be really something. You know, fart 61 years old. Still can attract a woman like that. Oh, pretty impressive, huh? <laughs> in, your, in my dreams. Yeah. Or look at the guy's car. Man. What a... The, girl, the boyfriend of my stepdaughter years ago said, chick magnet. A chick magnet. Now there's a chick magnet. Got a car like that. Girls will. <laughs> Girls get whiplash. They see the car. Oh, man, who's driving that car? Get the license plate. So we're going for symbols. It's the car. It's the possession. It's the status. It's the degree. Whatever it is. It looks like bad religion. Bad religion is all hung up in empty rituals whether it's the Christian bad religion, it's the Buddhist bad religion, the Hindu bad religion, all the juice is gone and all you have is a dry husk, an outer semblance, a veneer, something that looks religious. And then you look inside and it's just hollow. I've seen Buddhist temples like that. I've seen Buddhist temples where you walk into the temple and you have to first go through row after row after row of tables run by people selling lottery tickets. 
And why? You go into the temple, you make your offerings to the Buddha. Hey Buddha, remember me. Here's my money. Okay, and then you come out and you buy your lottery ticket. Okay, go Buddha, bless me. Hey Buddha, 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 Buddha. Hey. <laughs> that didn't work out. Let's try the Hindu temple. Hey, Shiva, 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 Shiva! <laughs> that didn't work out. The Mormons have got it nailed. They, hey, Church of Latter-day, something, something. Go for it! You know. Okay, Satra, give it your, give, Satra, give it your best shot. Let's try atheism. Go, atheism. <laughs> you know, something's gotta work here. You know? Empty ritual piled on empty ritual. You know? That's bad religion. Well, materialism is bad religion. Oh, if only I had a better car. Nicer house. More money. Better meals. Slick clothes. Darker hair. Something, anything. Empty rituals, symbols with no content that promise but never deliver. The big lie. Hmm. So while we are scurrying out after these simple, these symbols, these empty symbols, rather than religious symbols, they are symbols of hedonism, scurrying out in pursuit of them and then perhaps getting them, and then having the facade of actually having happiness, when all you have is the facade. While we're doing that, venturing out in the pursuit of happiness, of bliss, venturing out in the pursuit of thrills, excitement, to see the sense of being vibrantly alive, venturing out in the pursuit of security, safety. In the midst of all of that, here is this substrate consciousness, let alone Buddha nature much deeper. Here's your substrate consciousness. And you just rest in that. And then you're just resting again in an artesian well. Bliss, luminosity, non-conceptuality. All the things you were looking for as you went out are already there. And all you had to do was become radically disillusioned. To co-overcome the illusion that if the tentacles of my grasping can reach out with sufficient cleverness crafty enough, I'll be able to latch on just to those things that will give me bliss and a thrill and safety, and I'll bring them in like big octopus, and then hold onto them for dear life, and I'll be happy. Oh, until you see it doesn't work. Until you just read the newspapers. Just look at the lives. See here, I've spoken so often of our unprecedented access to the world stage the miseries, the calamities, and so forth. Well, another thing we have unprecedented, unprecedented access to is the lives of the rich and famous. I think there's a television program called The Rich and the Famous. Isn't that? I think there is. Something like that. Lifestyles of the rich and famous. In other words, the really happy people. <laughs> you know? They just don't even know how to spend their money because it's rolling in so fast. You know? They can't even imagine how they spend that much money, and that makes them happy. I can't imagine how much how I can spend as much money as I have. I must be really something. I must be really worth a lot, and I want to be worth something, and I'm worth most more, more than most people. That feels good. 
until I notice that other people don't really care one way or another. And that doesn't feel so good. But we can see. There it is. Unprecedented access to people who are gorgeous, who are famous, who are adored, have tremendous number of fans. They have their own... What do they call it in Facebook? I have one. Somebody set it up for me. The fan account or something like that. Because I don't have a fan. I don't do any of those things. Social networking. I'm just anti-social networking. So I don't have any of those. But somebody that Alan Pivubudu is a Dhamma teacher to have a fan Facebook. I've never checked it. I think there is one. And I probably have a couple hundred people that are fans of someone they think is Alan Wallace. <laughs> but if I were Gwyneth Paltrow, oh, or George Clooney, or Matt Damon, or Brad Pitt, or still my beating heart, Angelina Jolie. <laughs> Man, and I had a fan Facebook I'd be really fanned. <laughs> so it's kind of just get real. Get real. If you just look one step closer, you see they're not really any happier than anybody else, except for people who are starving, who are terribly ill, and so forth. But people are just getting by. They're pretty much about the same. So all empty rituals, empty symbols, covering up big lie. And then people like Anila and Andre and myself and a number of other people here, you start meeting people with no symbols at all. People like Yen Chamabandu. He had no symbols. He had nothing. It would be hard to even find villagers here who are as poor as he was. And he was, that was poor. No electricity, no plumbing. I moved into his hut when he moved down to Geisha Raptan's house. The nice one. Then Genshama went to even stay at my house. Oh man, I was so happy. I'm moving into a hut that had been dwelled in by an accomplished yogi for like 15, 20 years. Man, I was happy. Fantastic view, right under a rhododendron tree, on an edge of a cliff, and looking out of the whole Kangra Valley. Oh, it's so romantic, so unbelievably, wow, I'm so fortunate. I'm living in Genshama Wondu's hut. He was rich in only one thing, he and his hut. Only one thing was he really rich. I mean, he was bountifully rich. And that was bedbugs. Oh, did that place have bedbugs. Unbelievable number of... I didn't know there could be such a high density of bedbugs anywhere. But I found it on the first night. It was like, whoa, this is like Manhattan of bedbugs. There must be bedbug skyscrapers here. Because in one night, I got to about 12, you know, I got to sleep, and then at 1 o'clock in the morning or so, I wake up and like my body's on fire. And it's welts, just welts all over the place. And I look, I turn on my flashlight, and I counted 30 bedbugs, 30, in my sleeping bag. I'm a monk, I'm not going to kill them. So, I had this little cup, and there I am at 1 o'clock in the morning, and my body just, oh man, the bite from a bedbug is like... Oh, like a mosquito that's gone turbo-powered. A mosquito on steroids. It's welts. And moreover, the bed bug can hit you multiple times. They strafe you. Like a jet fighter can... Like napalm. Napalm of itching, rising these great big plumes of welts. And one can do that. Now imagine the 30 
they're calling a party. They say, there's this white guy and his skin is this thin. He is so juicy. They must have sent out a, cl a clarion call. Bedbugs of the world unite. This is Bedbug Central. We got a juicy one. He's warm and he's hot. And he's a monk and he won't even kill you. This is fantastic. So, I'm going through my, I'm going through my, my, my nylon sleeping bag, one by one, catching them and putting them in a cup where they can't crawl up the sides. And there were 30 of them. A lot of them were pretty fat. Because they, they're flat when they start, and then they're like little hippopotami, full of your blood when they've eaten their fill. You know? And so finally finished a cup, a cup full of bedbugs. And finally, okay, I think I'm free. And then I got some sleep. In the morning, the sun is up. Take my bedbugs out in front of his hut. And I throw them as far as I can. Way over the cliff. Find somebody else to eat. And I thought, okay, maybe there were 30 bedbugs. And I've just evacuated. The next night, oh, deja vu. Same thing, welts all over my body. And I turn on the flashlight, and lo and behold, 30 bedbugs. Put them in the cup. Next morning, throw them. And days go by, and every night it's 30, 35 bedbugs. I can't tell. I'm just not familiar with enough with bedbugs to know that they're the same bedbugs. <laughs> or they're just of the same family, because they kind of look alike. <laughs> but after I'd done this for two months, every night waking up with these welts in this, this fantastic, incredibly romantic, gorgeous little meditation hut, after this had gone on for two months, every single night, just, just you want to, you want to claw holes in your skin. It just itches so intensely. Then it finally dawned on me that I was giving these bed bugs two things they wanted: my blood and a really good ride. Because it was like Disneyland, you know. <laughs> They'd get a meal, like go to Disneyland. You go, you get to go there, get a guy, and then go on rides. That's the thing about Disneyland, right? And so they got their, they got, they got their food first, and then I gave them a ride. Whee! And then they all got in line. <laughs> they got in line for the next meal. <laughs> I was Disneyland. I was bedbug Disneyland. You know? All of that is a rather long tangent to idealizing even a meditation hut. And after some time, I came down the mountain and I and asked Genshama Wandula, how did you? <laughs> I won't mention the mosquitoes. Everybody's got mosquitoes. I won't mention the fleas. Everybody's got fleas. I won't mention the rats. Rats are everywhere. But how did you handle the bed bugs? I said, how did you handle that? Because I've not had a single good night's sleep since I've been in your room, in your hut. How did you handle the bed bugs? And he turned to me with this wonderful smile and he said, what bed bugs? <laughs> He said, oh yeah, a couple of years back I, I let another monk stay in my, in my hut and he said there were bedbugs. That's what he told me. I've never seen any bedbugs. So, so the point is, as we go out, whether it's out to a meditation hut, to a Rolls Royce, 
wanting to date Angelina Jolie, whatever, you know. It's going out, it's going out into a world that pretty much never conforms to our idea. Never conforms to the idea. It's always something different. The idea is relatively static, the reality is always in a state of flux. So if we consider then for ourselves the myriad times that we've been, we've ventured out into the world with a hope, herein lies my true happiness. This will truly make me happy. And we're, we're running after the mirages, running after the symbols, performing the empty rituals like bad religion. Always winding up in some disappointment, never quite working out as we anticipated. That really is grounds for compassion. Especially when there's an option, and this is again the key to compassion, there's got to be an alternative. If there's no alternative, then just be sad. But compassion has to be an aspiration. The aspiration has to be for something that is in the realm of possibility and not outside the realm of possibility. But shamat is in the realm of possibility. It's been realized countless times. So why not again? Why not? And why not for people like ourselves? Why not? Is it difficult? Is it easy? Is it long? Is it short? Many obstacles or few obstacles? Well, whatever. But is it in the realm of possibility? And if it's in the realm of possibility, there, releasing your attachment, disillusioning yourself from your attachment to the empty symbols, the empty rituals of the desire realm, release that through shamatha practice. Come in. Releasing the attachment. Balance your mind. And then find, ah, here is genuine happiness. Genuine luminosity. And genuine non-conceptuality. It's not permanent, but it's more permanent than most things. It's not unchanging, but it doesn't change like stuff out there, which is totally beyond control. Or at least almost entirely out of control. So this mid-range of compassion is really the aspiration, might we all be free of this utterly unnecessary suffering that comes from immersing ourselves in attachment to things that never had a chance of giving us genuine happiness or any true satisfaction. But fixating on it myopically, deludedly, and so tragically, may we all be free of that deluded attachment and all the suffering that gives rise. And may we then find, having become disillusioned with that, turn our attention, turn our attention to a pursuit that has a chance. Is there a guarantee? In this lifetime, if you practice shamatha, you find a retreat hut, you find blah, blah, blah. Is there a guarantee that you will achieve shamatha and it will not take more than one year, five years, ten years? Do you have a guarantee? Nope. No guarantee. Is there a chance? Yeah. But then if we turn the tables, is there any chance whatsoever that if you focus your attention outwards to other people, things, blah, 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 is there any chance, one chance out of ten million, that when you go out and you latch on, that will provide you with a lasting sense of satisfaction, freedom from anxiety, freedom from suffering, that will really deliver the goods and make you truly, and in an enduring fashion, will make you well and happy. Is there any chance? Zero chance.
So it's one avenue that has zero chance of real success. And another avenue that has some chance. But the beauty of shamatha, and I think some of, for some of you, quite a number of you, it's already obvious. It's not like buying a lottery ticket. Practicing shamatha is really profoundly not like buying a lottery ticket. So many pursuits of hedonic pleasure are. You want it, you want it, you want it, eh, you don't get it. You want it, you want it, want it, eh, nope. Okay, try it, want it, want it, get it. You know, it's kind of like you get it or you don't. You know? Cultivation of shamatha is not like that. Not if it's being practiced correctly. And that is, you don't have to wait. You're not held in suspense. If you're practicing well in the first week or two, <laughs> that's pretty quick. Pretty qu- quick return on your investment. You can already see some degree of greater looseness. Some degree of a bit more composure, a bit more relaxed, a bit calmer. All the more if you're complementing it with the four measurables. You practice for one month, you practice for two months, and you can see, huh, Will I achieve shamatha? All the nine stages achieve shamatha? Don't know. But you can see already on the path. This is good. This is more sane than it was. More balanced, more peaceful, more stable, more composed. Maybe some more clarity than it was. This is the right direction. Pursuit of hedonic pleasure isn't like that. It's not like that. So a lot more can be said. That's enough. So let's focus on compassion for ourselves, giving rise to authentic intention, motivation that's rooted in reality, and then expand the awareness out to our fellow sentient beings. May all beings be free of suffering of change and the underlying causes. Let's find a comfortable position. with his authentic motivation and aspiration to be free of suffering and the causes of suffering. Settle your body in its natural state, your respiration in its natural rhythm, and calm the turbulence of the mind with mindfulness of breathing.
arouse your mind. And in the spirit of compassion, direct your attention to your own past, the way, to the ways in which you have suffered, mentally suffered, perhaps even physically. Not because of some external calamity, but all of this set up, driven by the mental affliction of craving and attachment. looking for happiness in all the wrong places and ignoring it in the one place it can actually be found. Oh, compassion. And with each in-breath arouse a yearning and the aspiration, may I be free. Free of the anxiety, the suffering, the frustration, the anger, so much misery that comes in the shadow of attachment and its futile pursuits. Arouse the yearning with each in-breath, may I be free of suffering and the causes of suffering. And imagine that dimension of suffering and its underlying causes in the form of darkness with each in-breath, siphoning it into and dissolving it without trace in this orb of light at your heart, symbolizing the deepest dimension of awareness, of immutable bliss, your own Buddha nature. And breath by breath, imagine becoming free. Imagine getting real. 
and nurturing only those aspirations for which there's a hope, a real chance of finding satisfaction. Direct your awareness outwards. And tend especially to those who you know have suffered, perhaps are suffering in the present. Unnecessarily. In this world of change, suffering because of their attachment, their greed, their craving. giving rise to misery for themselves and ever so often misery for others as well. Attend closely and attend deeply to the level where you can see how similar they are to yourself.
with each in-breath arouse this aspiration. May you, like myself, be free of suffering and its underlying causes. With each in-breath, draw in and extinguish the darkness. With each in-breath, imagine them becoming free. See the light of hope that such suffering is not inevitable. At your own pace, let your attention rove. And continue practicing as we've done before.
Release all appearances and all aspirations and let your awareness rest in its own nature. The long one's gone. It was a nice long one, like a book. If you'd like to return it, I'm happy to respond. It was just too long for yesterday. So, not right now, we have two short ones. But that long one can come, come back like a homing pigeon. Olaso. <coughs> you mentioned pointing out instructions yesterday in the dream yoga. What are pointing out instructions? Some from K. Or called in Tibetan, Ripa Pointing out instructions, mm, it's very easy to give a cheap imitation. That's for starters. It's really easy. The words of the pointing out instructions are pretty simple. You don't need to study a lot. You don't need to master complex philosophy. Very simple. So if you want to fake it, it's quite easy to do. You can actually just play the tape recorder. That would do it. When authentic pointing out instructions are given, and I suspect... Pointing out instructions are given much more frequently than authentic point out, pointing out instructions are given. Then the person offering them, a person like Dingo Kensei Rinpoche, or Tushi Rinpoche, and the does list does, does go on. How long it goes on, I can't say. But I have met people like that who really can give them. And these, for such an individual, it's, it's a person with Dzogchen realization has actually realization of Rigpa. If you don't have realization, you can't point out what you don't see yourself. It's that simple. Pointing out instructions are pointing out to another person their own Buddha nature. It's like holding a mirror up so their Buddha nature can see Buddha nature. Only Buddha nature can see Buddha nature. The intellect can't see it. It's invisible to Buddha. In the Buddha nature, Rigpa, is invisible to the intellect. It's invisible to dualistic mind. It's invisible to sensory perception. It's invisible to substrate consciousness, but it's not invisible to itself. And so pointing out instruction is given, often with words, but not always. Often given with words, 
whether the, the Lama finds disciples, hopefully, who are ripe, who are prepared, who are ready to receive, because the Lama can give and it's possible no one receives. Pointing out instruction may be given and no one receives. This is commonly said also in empowerments, Vajrayana empowerment. That the Lama may give it. How, how, how many people receive it? That's another question. In that regard, there's a nice aphorism. There are many profound practices, but few profound practitioners. So, pointing out instructions. If they're given authentically, the person giving, pointing out instructions to help another person identify for themselves their own rikma, pristine awareness. These words that are used are flowing directly from, it's like the fountain is pristine awareness, and the words are the creative display. It's called rikbetzel. The words themselves are a creative display of one's own rikpa, and they're displayed to the other person. It's rikpa talking to rikpa. It's speaking from your Buddha nature to the other person's Buddha nature. It's kind of like bypass surgery. You're not speaking to the other person's intellect, their memory, their intelligence, their logic, their reasoning ability. It's kind of bypass surgery. It's not to say what you're saying is irrational. It's just that that's not the target. That person's coarse mind is not the target. That person's subtle mind, substrate consciousness, is not the target. The audience, in giving pointing out instructions, is the other person's rikpa. So you speak from rikpa to rikpa. And because of the nature of the source, and if the disciple is a suitable vessel, someone who is ripe, ready to receive, then in that transmission itself, then it's said metaphorically, but I think perhaps misleadingly, that the Lama actually transfers his realization to the other. But that cannot possibly be true literally. Otherwise, realization of Rikpa would be like a party favor. You just, how many would like? Forty? Oh, okay. <laughs> you know. And the Buddha would just go around giving pointing out directions to everybody. You know. And that's the one thing the Buddha said, among other things that he said, he can't do. And so it's not really transmuting like, you know, sending a, a spiritual virus. I had it. It's contagious and then you get it. Uh, right on the contrary though, it is speaking from your own rikpa to the rikpa, the other person. A resonance, a kind of resonance occurs such that something that's awake here awakens over there and the person from his or her own side has some glimmering, some opening of the clouds. Some glimpse that's authentic of Rikpa, seeing one's own face. Rikpa seeing his own face. Rangishel, Rangishel Jerwa, Rangishel Tongwa. In Tibetan. So in that encounter, when the Lama gives pointing out instructions, then suitable disciples gain some taste, that's really the best word, some taste, some authentic taste. What they tasted was Rikpa. Have they immediately become vidyadara? That is a person who has a direct, non-conceptual, utterly unmediated realization of rikpa. Probably not. That would be extremely rare. But does a person have the taste? Yes. Then, if one is really prepared to be a Dzogchen practitioner, if one is fully prepared, and frankly, to be fully prepared is to have achieved shamatha and vipassana, realization of emptiness already. Now, can you have some glimmering before that? The answer is yes. Right. But then the question is, 
if you are one of those fortunate disciples to be able to receive pointing out instructions from the master the caliber of still living young Tanabuchi, for example, and there are others, he's just simply one I know. If you're so fortunate to be able to receive pointing out instructions and so ripe that you actually receive it, then the one question that really matters is, can you sustain it? You're like a uh, an old-fashioned hound dog. You've seen with all the floppy skin, so they can pick up lots of molecules. They have all that floppy skin around the nose and the face. They can pick up a lot of molecules. It's already bred that way. And what they can do is almost miraculous, what these hound dogs can do. You know, the child is lost. You put, put the piece of clothing that the child wore up to the nose, and it it really is astonishing what can happen. So the hound dog gets the scent. Okay, so now it's a well-trained hound dog knows you're supposed to find somebody, a little child, say, who's lost. And then, and this is a true story, just as one example, and it, and it gives some idea of the delicacy of this. The dog is put in a car and is driving out in a car. The dog's nose out the window. And then at some point, goes, oh, 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 take a right. You know, and then oh, oh, take a right. Nope, not, not a right. That was a left. Take that back. Okay. The dog picks up molecules on the freeway of a child who's five miles away. That's pretty amazing. Picking up the scent and tracing it to its source. So that's what the pointing out instructions give you. Maybe if you're some incredible being, you have full realization right there. Not likely, right? That would be like putting the little girl right in front of the hound dog. Can you find her? (laughs) (laughs) Thumbs up on that one. Give me something harder. But to trace it back to its source. And that means, what what does the hound dog need to do? The hound dog has to practice sati. The hound dog has to practice mindfulness. Don't you smell from the time that the, the dog was given the piece of clothing? How many other scents come in? One minute later, five minutes later, fifteen minutes later. How many other scents? Lots and lots of scents. This dog is being bombarded by smells from all sorts. Right? Does the dog remember the one scent that really counts? Holding that in mind, then picking it up, and then when it picks it up in the air then holding that and maintaining mindfulness of the scent and mindfulness of the scent getting stronger, the scent getting weaker, the scent getting stronger, stronger, getting really strong, getting really, really strong until you trace it to the source. So the Dzogchen practitioner is giving point and out instructions. You get the scent. And then can you maintain that with mindfulness until you go to its source? And then you're on it. Something like that. So, it's very cool to find a video, to find such a Zogian master. It's even cooler to become one. Because really we have a major deficit now. So many of the great ones have passed away. Anila knows. So many have passed away now. Who are really absolutely authentic. So many passed away. So where are their replacements? And it's easy to think, as we Western like Western bedbugs trying to find some really juicy llama. Give me some pointing out instructions. Waiting for them. Okay, the old ones have passed away. 
Now let's have some new ones. Get some more coming out of Tibet. Hey, Tibet, come on, bring some more out. You gave us your first crop. Now bring us out a second crop. Okay, you young ones, you tukus, make it snappy. Come on, become like Dingo Kinsetimbuchi. Come on, snappy, we're waiting. And after a while they say, what the hell are you waiting for? How many teachings do you need to receive? We've been teaching you for 40 years now. How many teachings do you need? You're just going to wait for us? You're going to wait for it all to be just Tibetans, and Bhutanese, and Ladakis? So I think, really, time to put all the teachings into practice so we can realize that ourselves and help others point out. That's what I feel. Could be wrong, but I don't think so. So, when one is experiencing laxity and excitation at the same time, it's called the great union of laxity and excitation. Which would you tackle first? Or would you recommend to deal with both at the same time? Well, the short answer is, if you're experiencing... Actually, laxity is probably the wrong word, because bear in mind that's more of a technical phrase that really crops up from stage four. So the, the phrase we'll use is um, dullness. That's just, I'm finessing there. I'm uh, being picky-anky. So when you're experiencing the great union of dullness and excitation, you feel really dull and agitated at the same time. <laughs> the short description is, you're really screwed. <laughs> If you arouse your attention to overcome the dullness, you get agitated, and if you relax, then down into a tar pit like an old dinosaur, just turning into a, a fossil of dullness. So, what to do? I'm waiting to see how long I can wait to you know, go for dinner. <laughs> go for a walk. Go for a walk. The walking, go for a walk with your awareness out. Don't go for a walk ruminating, caught up in your head. I mean mine, I mean mine, past, future, hope, fear, hope, fear. I mean mine, I mean mine, I mean mine, rumination, rumination, blah, blah, blah. And then exhaust yourself, you know. So don't do that kind of walk. That's not so useful. Right? But the walk where you come out of your body, out into the visual field, out into the auditory field, back into the body, but the body in contact with the ground, and really be present. Be 100% a walker, a seer, a hearer. Get out, and in that way, refresh the mind by coming out, overcomes the dullness, and move, move briskly. Give you some cardiovascular there. Oh, that really helps to overcome the, the lethargy, the inertia, the heaviness of the body. Go out for a good, brisk walk. When I went up, when I first went up to Danzala, the second time in 1980, I was such an idiot romantic. I mean, unbelievable. And I wanted a cave. Dharamzala gets one of the heaviest monsoons in all of India. And I wanted a cave. Like mud central. You know? And so, this is still a response to your question. And so, I wanted a cave because the, the huts were all full. You know? There weren't that many up there. They're a high rent district. The yogi sets. So I went up there and I found Genshama Wondo. I'm quite sure it was he. He was the one I knew. He said, Gena, I'm looking for a cave. I'm 30 years old. I mean, I got some machismo. You know. Back then, 
I really had some juice. You know, give me a cave. I'm gonna be macho, like Anita's macho. <laughs> and said, any caves up here? And he said, Well, there's one. <laughs> there's one. <laughs> you want to see it? I said, Yeah. <laughs> you show me the cave. I want to see a cave. And so he showed me this kind of these two rocks. And there was some trickle of water flowing right from the back of it. And so it was all mud and two rocks overhanging. And he said, <laughs> there's your cave. <laughs> Here's your one-star cave. Nobody wanted it, but if you want it, it's free. You know, it was, man, it was nasty. It was really, really nasty. But he told me, and this is how it relates to your question, that um, going out and hiking up the mountain to, find, to take me up to this cave, he said, boy, that really gave me some good exercise. That was really helpful. <laughs> so he got some good exercise out of it to show me a really crappy cave that no one in his right mind, except for a really old rat <laughs> that couldn't find any place else to stay. You know, that's where an old rat would stay, where none of the rats wanted, you know. And so, but he found the exercise really helpful. You know, because sometimes the yogis actually are too uh, sedentary. In the Tibetan tradition, they don't really have that much yoga. There's some really high-level yoga of Tungkor and Salung for Dumon. But apart from that, there's not a whole lot, you know. And they're often eating a lot of butter and buttered tea. And often their health is not that good. And he didn't live a long life. I wish he'd lived decades more. He didn't live a long life. Very ascetic. But he found the exercise pretty good. So exercise is probably the best thing for that. And then as you're letting your awareness come out, it gets more relaxed. And as you're more relaxed, the excitation goes away, the restlessness. And as you're stirring up your whole system, getting some blood flowing, your breathing and so forth, that clears out the dullness. So that can be helpful. So that's a kind of a physical way to approach it. Another way to approach it, because we want to come in from every which way. Because bear in mind, dullness can crop at any, up, crop up at any time along the first four stages. And then when you get to stage four, then we call it, it's more subtle, we call it laxity. Coarse, medium, subtle. But we can approach it in multiple ways. And another, another major way is um, through reading, through discursive meditation, especially reading. Reading material that inspires, that inspires, really gives you kind of, almost like an exercise in loving kindness, to give you some sense of the, the realm of possibility. To read a book like this book, Radiant Splendor, that was amazing. Incredibly amazing. And it's written by a man with it. 100% integrity. But boy, the world he's described, like, move over Harry Potter. You know, that, that was really, that was quite a world he was describing. And so, whether it's a, a, a Lama's biography, it doesn't have to be all magic and mystery. One of the, the, the biographies of one of my own Lamas, Princess in the Land of Snows, by Sakyadamala. So, one of my cherished teachers, Lamas. Very inspiring. In fact, I just read a synopsis of that. One of his students or a friend wrote a briefer version. Just reading through it this morning, just 20 pages or so. I was just thinking, oh boy, how inspiring. There's Tara. There's a woman who just lives as Tara. Emanates Tara. Such compassion. So that's inspiring. Then I get inspired. Oh, I could be like her. A little bit anyway. I can move in that direction. So reading, whether it's reading meditation manuals, reading... Dharma reading the life stories of accomplished adepts and so forth. 
anything to inspire, to bring the, the lightness up. But it's a, a special type of lightness because we can easily get rid of the dullness by simply arousing hedonic desire. That gets us out of dullness. Oh, you know, like that. And then we're back into the hunter-gatherer mode. So to come out of the dullness, the apathy, the kind of heaviness, but to arouse it by way of genuine happiness, by rekindling, lighting the fire, putting oil on the flame of the aspiration for genuine happiness, uh, that can really be helpful. So, And nowadays, of course, we have podcasts, and we have so many recordings of people like the Dalai Lama. Go onto his website, dalalama.com. All kinds of teachings he's given. I, I just checked. I wanted to check something. Back to 2008, you go into archive, you can find all kinds of teachings there. And nowadays, there are just tens of thousands of hours online, you know, of teachings by marvelous teachers, some of whom passed away, many have passed away, but the teachings are still alive. And so, and I've been listening for the last several days, teachings that Yang Tan Rinpoche gave five years ago. And just, and it's a video, so I see him and I just, oh, just seeing his face and seeing something so flowing that it was just like his, his mouth as he was teaching, his mouth was always a little bit smiling. Just, just always a bit smiling. You know, like there's just, something's always bubbling up, always smiling. He spent 20 years in prison, 20 years in prison, torture, starvation, work, 20 years. He doesn't, he, he just mentioned, he mentioned it only once in the teachings, when he was speaking to his interpreter. He says, is my, is my speech difficult to understand? I'm afraid I'm, my speech is all jumbled up. And, and this is how it came out. He said, I'm afraid I don't, you know, I didn't have one dialect. It wasn't Amdo, it wasn't Kant, it wasn't, my speech is kind of like all mixed up different dialects. And the reason was because I was in prison for 20 years and there were all kinds of inmates from different dialects, so I just picked up different speech patterns from them and that's why my speech is difficult to understand. That's the only reference he made to spending 20 years in prison, is I'm sorry, but my speech may be a little bit difficult to understand because you won't be able to place my dialect. That's how 20 years of prison came up. And through all the teachings, this incredible gentleness, such a sweetness, and that little smile all the way through. And then often it would kind of come up to it, just a very gentle chuckle, and smile, and teaching on. He sleeps for about an hour and a half every night. And he sleeps sitting up. So you can't quite tell whether he's sleeping or maybe just practicing dream yoga. And he's 83 years old. So I phoned up on his attendant yesterday. And he's come out of retreat. But now he's gone back to Tibet. He's back, back to Amdo. So I don't know when he's coming back. So he, um, he just moves. He just moves in the world to be of service. So there's still people like that. It's wonderful to revere such people and it's all the better to emulate them. Hola, so. Enjoy your dinner.